turn to the Old Testament book of Amos. The Old Testament book of Amos. If you have no idea where the book of Amos is at, I'm not even going to try to tell you where it's at in the Old Testament. It would be best for you to start at the beginning in the table of contents of your Bible and look it up and uh, find it. If you don't want to do that, you can just grab the pew Bible and the pew rack in front of you and you can find our passage on page 765. Page 765. And for many this morning, the book of Amos is a complete unknown to you. In fact, the only thing that you can connect Amos to is that he makes great cookies, right? And that he's famous for those cookies. But Amos, long before he was the cookie maker, even though they're not the same Amos, uh, Amos was a prophet uh, that uh, God used in mighty ways to speak to the people of God as well as the unbelieving world of his day to turn from their sin and, and to pursue God and his decrees. And one thing I love about our church is that we have an appetite for all of God's word. If you were to go and look up Amos Sermon Series uh, through Google, you would find very few churches that have taken a verse-by-verse study of this book. They're out there, but they are few and far between. And one thing that I love about this church is that we believe that all of Scripture is God-breathed. The popular passages, the passages that get preached over and over again, they're God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So the man and woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work, but that truth is also true of all 66 books of the Bible, including the ones that maybe we've never opened up, maybe we've never taken time to read, and and, and as a church, it is going to be so good as the people of God to, to be reminded of that truth as we look at an obscure minor prophet. Now, the reason why he's called a minor prophet isn't because what he has to say is small, but because of the length of his uh, writings and his prophecy is much smaller than that of Isaiah or Jeremiah, uh, the major prophets. But what he is going to announce to us today is so critical for us to know. It is so timely here, even though it was written eight centuries before the coming of Jesus Christ, it is still so appropriate and so relevant relevant almost 30 centuries later and so relevant for a people here in America. What we are going to do is we're going to open up this book this morning. I'm going to give you a bit of an introduction and then we're going to get into the first of the prophetic words that Amos shares with the unbelieving uh, people groups around him. And then next week Amos is going to turn his attention to the people of God and we're going to continue in this process. And we'll be doing this now all the way through the end of July. And so this is our summer series where we are going to learn what it means when God's just this rolls and flows like a river. But let's go ahead and turn to God's word this morning. We're going to read uh, verses 1 and 2 of Amos chapter 1, and we're going to ask God's blessing on our time and then jump right into our text. Here's what the word of the Lord uh, says through the prophet Amos. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the king of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Let's stop there and let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we ask for your blessing on this time as we explore 
the life and times of this shepherd from Tekoa, Amos. Now, Lord, for many, I'm going to believe the vast majority, Lord, have never encountered this book. But as I have encountered over these last weeks in studying, I am reminded of the truth that you are speaking through your word. And there is so much that we can learn from every uh, book uh, of your scripture. So, Lord, we ask that you would bless our time in the book of Amos. That you would remind us of, of how you interacted with people of old. And how you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And how you're interacting with us. That you're a God of judgment and a God of, uh, of anger at times because of our sin. But, Lord, also you are a God of great mercy and forgiveness and love. And so, Lord... Lord, help us to understand and balance those two truths about you and holding them in tension, fully recognizing that you are good, whether you are exacting judgment upon a people or if you are forgiving them and cleansing them of their unrighteousness. So Lord, teach us, show us who you are, show us who we are in the mirror of your scripture this morning we ask and it's in Christ's name we pray amen and amen well some of the words that I hated to hear growing up was the phrase that my mom would announce to the three boys in the Badal family wait till your father gets home I wish I could say she only said it on a a sporadic amount of times, but it was probably shared far more than the three but all boys would have ever wanted to be announced later in our lives. And, And what it meant was, is it was the nuclear option for mom. What it meant was she had had it with the three children that she had brought into the world. It wasn't a threat, but it was a promise that a time unknown to us dad was going to come home and before we would be able to state our case dad would find out that while he was working hard at work while he was seeking to uh, take care of his family his renegade rebel boys were causing the love of his life great consternation and frustration The last thing that he was wanting to do was exert more energy after working a full day of work. But this bad report would bring out the wrath and indignation of my dad upon his sons. Now sadly, I saw this cycle more and more than I wish to admit. And yet it took me into adulthood to see that my mom's words weren't words of anger and judgment, but opportunity. You see, as I hear those words uttered by my wife to my children, there's an opportunity to be had. Wait till your father gets home is one of those last opportunities to say, change your ways. Cease and desist. Stop so that in in my response to your dad when he gets home, maybe the morning started out really, really bad. And I was ready to call you and tell you, you've got some work to do when you get home. But things changed around noon. A new tune was being played. A new attitude had been found. What started out as a bad day of sin and disobedience has turned into a great afternoon of obedience and willingness to abide by the rules of the house. Now sadly, because of our foolishness, the Badal boys never got that. 
And so we would, with fear and trepidation, wait until our father got home. And being the son of a man from Baghdad, there were old school ways of addressing issues. And I'll remain, just leave it there, because I don't want to see my dad go to jail. I'm kidding, by the way. It's Father's Day. I love my dad. But when I think about that childhood remembrance, as I open the book of Amos this morning, I come to this realization that that's exactly what God is announcing to the people of the world. And he's doing so not through a mom, but through a prophet. And what Amos is saying is, listen, if you don't turn from your evil ways, if you don't change course, God is coming. Your heavenly father is coming and you are not going to enjoy that time. And so this is a word of warning. This is a word of judgment. This is a word of doom. But I also want you to recognize that the book of Amos, because it's at times an ugly book. It's a hard book. It's a book that isn't much fun. But I want you to see each and every week that it is a book of opportunity. It is a book of of warning that doesn't mean that where we are at today is where we have to finish up. But with the very essence of God announcing warning of judgment and wrath is an opportunity for us to turn. Is an opportunity for us to put our faith and trust in God. Listen to me very carefully this morning before it's too late. Because notice in verse 2 what we are told. The Lord roars from Zion. Do you hear him? Do you hear that roar of the lion far off? That sends the warning through to us? Well, he's roaring. He's uttering his voice from Jerusalem. And the pastures of the shepherds mourn. And the top of Carmel withers. We'll talk about more of that in the moment. But this morning, we have before us an incredible example. The Old Testament, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 6 says, Now these things took place as examples for us. Why do we have Amos in our Bibles? They serve as an example for us, and Paul tells us why. That we might not desire evil as they did. You see, Paul knew that that the very heart of human beings in the first century was evil. Just as it was eight centuries prior in the days of Amos. And here you are this morning hearing from another preacher who says in the 21st century, if we're not careful, evil will lead the way. And so we need prophets and and preachers and, and priests to come. And to remind us that our ways are evil and it is before it is too late, there is time to turn and find grace, mercy, and love. Well, there are four truths that I want to look at this morning. We're not going to invest a lot of time here. It's an introduction. So we want to whet the appetite this morning of what uh, we want to learn from this text. But the first thing I want you to see from the book of Amos is that we are taught a truth about our own lives with regards to the work we are called to do. The work we are called to do. The text opens up by telling us right away 
that we are reading the writing of a man named Amos. It says right there from the beginning, the words of Amos. And so we know who the author is. It is this man, Amos. Now, this writing of this man, Amos, is one of the earliest writings of all of the prophets. And so he leads the way in in hearing from God. God is going to, again and again, amongst the people of God in the Old Testament times, use prophets to convey his message of what he wanted his people to know. And Amos is one of the first that comes on the scene. Now, what do we know about Amos? We don't know much about him at all. In fact, we only got one picture we could find on his Facebook page. A good-looking dude, got a beard. You know, he wore a nice kind of gray but uh, salmon color robe. Some of you are actually wondering, where did we get this? Well, this is from about the ninth century, I believe. It's a, an icon. It's a picture that was uh, drawn up about Amos. But here's the thing. We don't know what Amos looked like. So you can't go bad with a long-haired and long-bearded dude uh, to give a picture of the, book, the man, Amos. But what do we know about him? Well, we are told right away that he's a shepherd. He's a shepherd. And we are told that he works and resides in a place called Tekoa. Tekoa uh, is much like saying that he was from Hinkley. When you tell people that you live in Hinkley, they're like, where? And then you say, well, it's not far from Sugar Grove. And they're like, where? And you say, well, it's west of Aurora. And they're like, you mean Iowa? And uh, no. Tekoa was a place about 20 miles south of Jerusalem. Now, that doesn't seem very far to us, but back in the day, that was quite a journey. Tekoa is there. It's the balloon on the Google Maps. You can visit Tekoa today. It's south of Bethlehem. And if you remember, Bethlehem wasn't all that known. It was a little city, as the uh, as the carol writer says, oh, little town of Bethlehem. Well, Tekoa is like a suburb of Bethlehem, so that shows you it's even smaller right now it's a city that has residing in it about 4,000 people. It's not a very big city. In fact, it's a city that uh, really has a very country-esque setting to it. And this is where Amos was from. Now we're told he's a shepherd. That's not a regal position in any way. It was a dirty, lonely job. Uh, we know that to be true because uh, during the uh, writing of uh, the um, Jewish Talmud and Midrash that, that was written to speak of the traditions and times and ways of, of culture in Jewish uh, history, It was said of shepherds that they were not to be brought into the courtroom because their word wasn't good enough to be a witness in any courtroom proceedings. It was something that uh, was menial. It was something that was dirty. Uh, You would not go with great affection into a party or social setting and say, let me tell you about my son Amos. He's a shepherd. Isn't that great? That's not brain surgeon. That's not doctor or, or some other high-valued individual. This is, this is pretty low on the corporate ladder. It was viewed as something beneath most people. But notice Amos is okay with that. Amos says, this is who I am. He says, listen, I am Amos, 
And I'm, amongst, I'm among the shepherds of Tekoa. Now, turn in your pages there to uh, Amos chapter 7, verse 14. He gives us almost at the end of his prophecy a little bit more about him. And this is what he says in, in Amos seven, fourteen. Amos is answering to another individual and he says this uh, about himself. I was no prophet nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. Wow. It's not saying much. What he's saying is, is listen, even though I'm a prophet of God, I, didn't, I never thought I would be a prophet. It was never in my thinking, my 5, 10, or 15 year plan, that I was going to be a prophet. I didn't have the education to be a prophet. I didn't have the background of being a prophet. My dad wasn't a prophet that I could learn the prophetic ways through him. He says, all I am is a herdsman. And when the herd doesn't need me as their shepherd, I go and I prune sycamore trees. This guy doesn't have a whole lot going for him with regards to a earthly resume. And there's a truth that we need to understand. And that is that it is God who is on the lookout for modern day Amos's. For some of us this morning, you are thinking, well, what could I do for God? I'm a garbage man. I'm a, I'm a, a factory worker. I'm this. I'm that. I'm, nobody knows who I am. I do a menial work. It's an important work, yes, and it, it has value to it, yes, but let's be honest, if God is going to change a culture, if God's going to change the world, surely he won't use a person like me. But I want you to notice that Amos, a man who lacked what seemingly was everything from an earthly perspective on the person that God would want to use, he had amazing abilities that were unseen through earthly eyes. First of all, as we read his prophecy, he has an uncanny ability to write in a poetic way. His writing is beautiful. It's beautiful. You sit there and go, how could an educated shepherd write in such a way? He seemingly has musical ability because we'll learn in the text as we continue to move forward that there are times where literally it seems like he's writing songs in the process. You see, what we need to understand and know is though the world may think that we're not all that important, God has gifted you and I as his workmanship, as his special creation. There is none like you in all of the world. And he has gifted you to use your gifts not only to serve others around, but to serve him. And sometimes those gifts are unseen by a watching world. And God begins to bring out those gifts in a way that we would have never seen coming. And that's what he does with Amos. But notice, I want you to know, before Amos gets a big head with regards to it, if you're still in, in Amos 7 verse 14, it goes on. And he says, this is what I am. I'm no prophet, I'm no prophet's son, but I'm a herdsman, a dresser of sycamore figs. But here is the important thing. I, I always say this, always look for the, the but in Scripture. That is the B-U-T of Scripture. Because when there is that B-U-T, God is about to do something awesome. 
at one of my favorite B-U-T's, is that we are children of wrath, but, in Ephesians chapter 2, but because of God's great love and mercy, he saved us. What a, what a change. Something radical has happened. And in Amos 7.14, we have a but. He says, listen, I'm nothing of value, nothing of importance, verse 15, but the Lord took me from the following, from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, go, prophesy to my people Israel. Now therefore hear the word of the Lord. God wants to take you in your menial world, in your menial place, in your place of obscurity, in the Tekoa of the Fox Valley, God wants to take you, and he comes to you, and he says, I want to use you in awesome ways. Can I tell you just how awestruck I am that God would take, listen, and I don't mean this in any joking way, a no-good student, I was a terrible student. Terrible. And when I mean terrible, go down four levels of terrible. A kid that never could figure out what he was going to do. And so I get into the food service business. Well, that seemed good enough, right? That, that we'll, we'll serve food. And, and I learned that from my dad. I didn't learn that from, from a college. I didn't learn that from an institution. I learned that from my dad. And he wasn't sure. When my dad asked me to take over the catering business, he said, son, I'm going to ask you to do something that I don't think you are able to do. But I'm in trouble. I need help. And you're my only answer. So we're going to do this together. And he was absolutely right. I was 18 years old when he asked me to take over his business that he had had built and, and had grown. But then some years later, God began to say, but to Tim. And this uneducated, ill-prepared individual, God says, I want you to pastor a church. I want you to pastor a church. Can I tell you, I I go back to my local high school, uh, because I live in the community where I went to high school, and I will run into teachers and they'll say, we hear you're the teaching pastor at Village Bible Church. What happened? What happened? You couldn't put two sentences together when we were teaching you. What happened? God happened. And God takes the obscure. God takes seemingly the useless individuals. And God says, in my care, you are my workmanship created in Christ to do good works that I've prepared in advance for you to do. And your job and my job is twofold. Number one, to pray that God would do that in our lives. And number two, when God calls us to such things, that we would then be willing and open to go and do it. You see, the call of God is seen. I don't know if you saw, but something spiritual happened this morning when Leighton and Jenny were standing up here. Those were everyday, ordinary people in our church, and God had an Amos moment with them and said, I want you to go to the Philippines. And they could have come up with every excuse. It's not the right time. It's not the right place. We're not the right people. But God moved, and God had a but for the Hellwigs. And for Tim, your pastor, and I want you to know, you may see yourself as small, but God has got a plan for you. And our job is to be obedient. Well, that obedience involves three things. Number one, it involves faith. 
It involves faith. Amos had to believe in God. How could he speak on behalf of a God he didn't believe in? And so if we're going to do ministry like Amos did, we've got to believe that God is there and he is who he says he is because what good would it be to do ministry? The second thing it involves is not just faith, but obedience. It involves obedience and, and, and a willingness to do what God says. And where does that come from? Holiness. Holiness. How could Amos speak on behalf of God if he himself was living in sin, the same sin that he was going to call out? And so when we're called by God, we're saying goodbye to things that we no longer would do because we say, well, wait a minute, I can't serve God and live like the people I'm called to minister to because that would be hypocrisy. Third, it's faith, it's holiness, it's courage. Amos is going to preach a message that is altogether unpopular to the people around him. It means that they may get angry, they may hurt him, that's what they would do to many of the prophets. Jesus, in fact, said, you kill the prophets. So Amos had to have courage that the things that he held on to tightly, he needed to let go and say, God, as you will, as you want to use me, I'm willing to go and I'm going to have the courage to do the things that you need me to do. And so he did it. He did it. And we are called to do the same thing. But notice back in verse 1, what it involves is faith and, and holiness and courage. And where does that come from? It comes from a personal walk and experience with God. This shepherd of Tekoa saw something concerning Israel that came from God. And what it means is, is he was in tune with God in such a way that God began to reveal his plans and his purposes because he was walking closely with him. Are you aware of the plans and purposes of God, not only for yourself, but for the world? And if you're not, and you sit there and say, why not? It is probably because you're not walking in close fellowship with God, seeking to grow your faith and your holiness and courage to do such things. Notice the final thing that we see about the job that we have. It comes in the name Amos. And I don't want to belabor this because it's, I don't think this is what God intended, but I see a very cool coincidence that, that takes place. It would be very similar to saying, my parents named me Timothy, and Timothy was a pastor in the Bible. And so little did, did uh, mom and dad know that, that they were naming me what I would become. Well, they didn't know that. In fact, the reason why I was named Timothy was because I came from a, a mixed race uh, mom and dad. And that's what Timothy was. He was a young man who was born into uh, a, a relationship with a Greek father and a Jewish mother. And my dad being from Iraq and my mom being from the United States, they made the decision. They had no idea that I would one day become a pastor. But there's a connection there. The Timothy of the Bible was a pastor, and the Timothy who is your pastor is a pastor. But what about Amos? The name Amos literally means burden bearer. Burden bearer. And he was going to carry a burden. And the burden was twofold. He had a burden for the glory of God, 
And he had a burden with regards to the sin of the world. And I want you to know this morning, we need to be Amos's in the world where we carry the burden, the burden that we live always, coram Deo, in the face, before the face of God, is what that means from the Latin, before the face of God always. That should be a burden of ours. We carry that around. How I talk, I talk in the presence of God. How I act, I act in the presence of God. How I respond to people in the good, the bad, and ugly of life, I do so in the presence of God. That is a burden I carry. But also the sins of the world around me. Are you burdened by what you see in our world today? Are you burdened? To the core, when you see of heartbreaking situations and sin running uh, seemingly rampant in our world today, are you a burden bearer? Amos went and shared with the world around him because he bore the burden of the glory of God and the sinfulness of man. And he sought to see how he, through the power of God, could change it. That's the work we're called to do. We're going to move much quicker through the next three. The next thing we see is the world we live in. The world we live in. As we look at the life and times of Amos, we are able to sit there and say, wait a minute, not much has changed since the 8th century. Now we are told right away in verse 2 that all of this transpires in the days of Israel, in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Now this is after the three great monarchies of Israel under the combined kingdom of Saul, David, and Solomon. A civil war breaks out and the ten tribes of the north become the nation of Israel and the two tribes of the south become the nation of Judah. And so you've got this split kind of very similar to uh, the Union and the Confederacy where at one point in our American history, we had two reigning presidents, if you will, that being Abraham Lincoln and that being Jefferson Davis. And they were split, their own currency, their own military. So if you ever want to understand how the split of the kingdoms work, you look to us in America during the 1860s and you'll see two separate nations sharing a a similar land. Well, we're told of two kings that reside Uzziah and Jeroboam. Now what we are told about them and during this time is that, like Dickens says, it was the best of times and it was the worst of times. Let's deal with the best for a moment. First of all, it was the best of times because the nation of Israel and Judah, those two areas, experienced the greatest territorial expansion that had ever been seen in Israel's history. More than David or Solomon, the nation was bigger than it had ever been before. And there's a couple reasons why. Number one, political stability. Political stability. Both of these kings, Jeroboam and Uzziah, had very long tenures as kings. In fact, they both ruled for about 40 years. And with that came great consistency and calm within the country. You knew who your leader was. There was no instability. There was no pendulum swinging from one king to another. There was political stability. Second, there was agricultural productivity. During this time, historians tell us that Israel and Judah experienced great harvests. And with each great harvest, allowed people to feel more and more at ease and comfortable that happy days are here again. 
The ability to eat and drink and be merry because there was no concern of famine. There was no concern of drought or pestilence. Life was good. This led to, as it normally would back in the day, agricultural productivity led to economic prosperity. The two kingdoms had been at peace with their neighbors for a prolonged period of time, which allowed for trade, which allowed for the economy to flourish, which allowed for a new class of of, of citizenry to become wealthy. The middle class was booming, and riches came in, and the ability to take on new possessions and comforts were afforded to the people. Seems like a lot of talk today. We live in a country, for the most part, where we have political stability. That is, we don't have coups taking place. We don't, we're not living in Venezuela or, or other places. And so we have a rule of law. There's stability. So we don't wonder when we leave the house what's going to happen. There's stability. Second, there's productivity. America produces more than any other country in the world. We live in a land that literally, money literally grows from the ground, if you think about it. The natural resources and all the abilities we have to refine and and take what we grow is second to none. And because of it, we have economic prosperity. You and I live in the most prosperous nation in all of the world. We have the ability to live at ease. It is, listen to me, my friends, we live during the best of times, but can I say we also live during the worst of times? Because amidst all those good things, there was moral decay. We'll talk about this in the days to come. There was social injustice. People treated others like trash. There was political corruption. While there was stability, there was corruption that was taking place. And of the people of God, there was spiritual laziness and hypocrisy. Can I say again, it's as if Amos is speaking to 21st century America. A place of economic productivity and prosperity, but in a place of moral decay, a place of social injustice, a place of political corruption, and a place of spiritual laziness. Amos has a word for us. Oh, how we need the book of Amos this morning to awaken the church and to call us to arms so that we can take the gospel to a world that is lost before it's too late. Amen? I said amen. Amen. Thank you. Notice next we have a warning. A warning. The warning comes to six areas. We're going to see them. You can, you can follow them as you go on there. But there are six areas that are going to experience a warning. First of all, Damascus in verse 3, Gaza in verse 6, Tyre in verse 9, Edom in verse 11. The Ammonites uh, are there as well in uh, verse 13. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, Moab. These are not the people of God. These are pagan areas, pagan nations. And God says, I've got a warning for them. And, And he starts and he says that the lion roars from Zion. The roar is the voice of God. It causes the shepherds to mourn. Why? Because a lion is a predator. And a lion comes to destroy sheep. And it says that it will wither Carmel. And what that is a reference to is Carmel was a mountaintop full of lush vegetation, full of flowering, uh, uh, flower, uh, flowers and vegetation and lushness. 
and it was going to be destroyed. And what it meant was bad times were coming. In the words of Credence Clearwater Revival, there was a bad moon rising. And But God was giving a warning, like my mom did to the three boys. Wait till your father gets home. But it seems, as he articulates to these different places, he names one singular sin for each of them. Is it really that God would bring judgment upon a people for one sin? Well, he could. One sin is enough to send us all to hell. One minor infraction makes us fall short of the glory of God. But notice in the text, he will say it six times, this phrase, it's seen in verse 3 and repeated again and again and again. For three transgressions of, and then he names the area, and for four, I will revoke, I will not revoke the punishment. That's what he says. He repeats it again and again and again. What it's saying there, what is being said in our modern day vernacular is, I've had enough. The sin has gone on for too long. It's got to stop. And since you're not going to stop it, I'm going to stop it for you. But what were the sins that God had had enough of? Break these down into three. We're not going to deal with each six of them, but three. And we're going to see these fleshed out in the days to come. These unbelieving people were under the judgment of God for three types of sin. Number one sin, the sin of cruelty. The sin of cruelty. He comes to Damascus. And it says in verse 3 that the reason why judgment is coming is because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. They had gone to war with Gilead. And instead of just taking over the land, what they had done, listen, is they had pulverized the people. They had brought them down to pieces. They had utterly destroyed them. And God says, for that, my judgment and my punishment is coming. They were beating out people like you would beat out wheat to get rid of the chaff. But they pulverize them. Notice it says that they used sledges of iron. It speaks of the uh, atrocities of how they decimated people in warfare. Number two, the sin of commerce. That is, they used business in ungodly ways. This comes to Gaza, Tyre, and Edom. And it says that they sold whole people groups into slavery. They tore families apart and they sold individuals, bearers of the image of God, like they were livestock. Sins of commerce. Thirdly, sins of carnage. The Ammonites and the Moabites did things that were unspeakable. And God says of both of them, listen very carefully, that what he says is the things that were to be his... His, that is God's, they had desecrated. And he says in there, in very graphic terms, you went after the unborn, and you went after the dead. You desecrated the dead. The unborn are under my watch. The dead, they're under my watch. And you have come, and you've desecrated both of those sanctuaries, the death of uh, the dead, the sanctuary of the dead, and the sanctuary of the unborn. And you have reviled against me to go after that. Three sins that would cause the Lord to burn in his anger. Can I say that those three sins are alive and well in our world today? The sin of cruelty. In the last hundred years, we have 
demolished whole cities and countries in the name of war. We've called it, and listen, it's crazy. You know what we call this type of warfare? Shock and awe. Are you kidding me? Shock and awe. No, cruelty of epic proportion. Trafficking of people is more alive and well today than ever before. We treat people like trash and carnage, what we do to the unborn. God help us. Our governor laughs and smiles as he writes the death sentence for millions of unborn. This is happening today as it was happening in the days of Amos. And notice the judgment of God. Notice what the judgment is. And you can see this because I've got to finish up here. Every one of the judgments is fire. Fire purifies sin. It destroys sin. And the same fire that each of these cities would experience is the same fire that all those who rebel against God will one day experience in hell. God is a God of judgment. God is a God of wrath. And we need to take that seriously, that we live in a world where people are going about their lives under the wrath and indignation of God, and God is announcing the lion is roaring to the people of the world. Judgment is coming. Turn from your wicked ways, or there will be fire in your future. Is that a burden that you and I carry? That the people we work with, that the people we live next door to, that the people that we're engaged with on a daily basis are under the judgment of God. And we hear the lion roaring. We know that at a time unknown to us that God will come and Jesus will ride on his horse that is called faithful and true and he will destroy the enemies of God. We know that to be true. But we go about our day as if peace is at hand. We need to be like Amos, burden bearers of that truth because God is coming and God will not be mocked. Men will reap what they sow. So finally, there's a way that we should go. God isn't speaking to us in this text. I don't want to draw too many applications here because this was written to a special group of people at a specific time and it's written to unbelievers. God says, because of your sin, I am going to judge you. I'm going to punish you. Well, that is not true for us. For now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, the book of Romans tells us. So what truth do we have? As we hear the lion roaring in the world, should it not, and stick with me for just a moment, should we not stop and in fear and trepidation of the lion that we know to be strong and ferocious, should we not stop and confess of our own sins? Should we stop in our trifleness towards God and, and, and see God as an all-consuming fire? Should we not run to God and seek the forgiveness of God for our sins, for our lackadaisical spirituality, for our willingness to partner with the world instead of partnering with God? The roaring lion should call us to change. But here's the great thing that we can know, and it's a great celebration amidst a terrible, terrible passage of Scripture. That that lion who was roaring, we would be told, was the Lion of Judah. But we are told that the Lion of Judah would become the Lamb who would be slain. That ferocious lion would become a lamb. And would go to the cross on our behalf so that 
so that we would not be devoured under the Father's punishment and wrath, but that you and I might experience salvation. And many of us have. But there are still many in this room today who hear the roaring of the lion and turn a deaf ear to it. That lion is coming, and he will do one of two things. He will come to protect, or he'll come to destroy. And the Bible says at that time, maybe at the end of today, for no man knows what a day might bring. And so today, the book of Amos calls every one of us, whether believer or non-believer alike, to get on our knees and to seek forgiveness from the God of the universe, who is promising judgment and punishment upon all those who rebel against him. Wait till your father gets home is a word that should resonate in our hearts and it should change us to live differently as a result.